Well, my favourite definition of revival is that it's waking up to reality. It's waking up to reality because reality is the world as it is perceived by God. It's God's perspective on things. Well, hello and welcome to the Great Southland Revival podcast series. Uh, in this series, myself and Warwick are interviewing uh, a huge array of Australian authors and academics and historians as we tap into the topic of revival and Australia's Christian history. So uh, today I have the amazing privilege of speaking with Stuart Piggin. Um, Stuart Piggin is a name you, you very well may have heard if you've read much of Australia's uh, Christian history before. He's um, a prolific author, he's a historian, a man of letters. Um, in terms of a brief biography, um, Stuart has lectured in religious history uh, at both the University of Wollongong and the University of Sydney for some 15 years. Um, he was the director of the Centre uh, for, for the History of Christian Thought and Experience at Macquarie University. Um, Stuart is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a fellow of the Religious History Association of Australia. Uh, Stuart's written uh, over a hundred articles for academic journals and is the author of at least seven books, three of which actually I have in front of me here. And um, I'll just profile very briefly because I want to encourage uh, people to uh, be aware of and read these amazing works of Australian Christian history. So The Fountain of Public Prosperity, which is volume one of a two series uh, set that Stuart authored with Robert Lind Linda. And um, the second one is Attending to the National Soul. Um, which I also highly encourage. I'm sure we'll mention these in a few minutes. And also Firestorm of the Lord. Again, I'll mention these ones um, as we go in conversation. But I want to uh, say, first of all, a huge welcome, Stuart, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kurt, for your huge welcome. It's a huge privilege. Thank you. Excellent. Great to be with you. And I thought I'd perhaps ask Stuart, um, because we're talking about revival, we're talking about people coming to faith and um, what God does in the lives of individuals and in the lives of nations. I'd love to hear, I've given a brief you know, profile of your sort of professional background, but we'd love to hear just a little bit about your personal faith journey, your journey to Christ, if you could um, yeah, share a bit of that with us. Mm, sure, thank you. I suppose my journey is reasonably familiar in Australia. Um, in 1959, Billy Graham came to Australia. Uh, my family were living 600 k's away from Sydney, but my brother was uh, was at Hawkesbury Agricultural College in Richmond, and he was invited by his uncle to attend the one of the Crusades, and he attended and he accepted Christ as his Lord and Saviour. And following that, um, the, our whole family came to Christ. My parents came to Christ, and then. Uh, um, wow. I I came to Christ and my two younger sisters, um, and um, uh, uh, the influence of that uncle who invited my my brother to the crusade continued throughout our life. He was the headmaster of Trinity Grammar School, Rod West, and uh, he was the sort of guy who took Christ with him everywhere. And I remember when I was on study leave in Yale. I'm being nostalgic now, Kurt, because you're you're bringing up things which are, are precious to me, I guess. And I've just been thinking about these things. And I remember I was on study leave in Yale, which is where one of the founders of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, studied. And there's a Jonathan Edwards yeah. College at Yale University. 
and it was a great privilege to go there and spend a study leave there. Anyway, Rod West visited visited us there, and we went down to the uh, the the green in um, the centre of the Yale village. It's very beautiful. There are three churches across the green, and we went into one of them. I suppose it was the Episcopalian church because we were, we were Anglicans, Episcopalians, and uh, uh, you need to to know that that part of America, the northeast of America. It's it's as swanky, it's as posh, it's as upmarket as as the poshest parts of Britain. I mean, th these are these are not your your, your, your normal Yanks. <laughs> these are these are really <laughs> you know uh, people who uh, pride themselves on their culture and all the rest of it. But there we were in this church, mm. and the minister asked us to sing that revival song, "Revive Us Again." Um, you know, mm. Hallelujah, thine the glory, revive us again. And I remember my uncle standing there. Singing this song at the top of his voice <laughs> in this uh, in this glorious part of the world, it was really with the snow outside on the green. And it was a, a, mm. uh, an experience of great beauty. But uh, yeah, um, so that's my my background. Um, that's amazing. Mm. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, and uh, you know, for reflecting on it as well in the lead up to our conversation today. Well, I did, um, I did want to say about that that uh, and this this is the. I'm oh, sorry, I got a bit sidetracked on, on my uncle, but no, in 1989, which was 30 years after the Billy Graham Crusade, I was asked by the principal of Moore Theological College to give a lecture on the on the Billy Graham Crusades. And by that time, I had made a study of revival, which I hadn't, of course, in 1959. I was far too young. But in 19, mm. 1989, I I made a study of revival by then, and I came to the conclusion mm. that this was. Uh, the Billy Graham Crusades experience in Australia was was a genuine revival. One of the wow. one of the important essential characteristics, I believe, of, of genuine revival, which distinguishes revival from other spiritual experiences in the church, is that it's something which spills out beyond the church into the wider community. It's got to in the yeah. wider community. And uh, mm -hmm. my uh, rector, my Anglican minister at the time, down in Fig Tree in Wollongong, uh, who was a very bright bloke, PhD in physics and all the rest of it. He said to me, "Well, if you're going to prove this is a revival, you've got to you've got to uh, have a look at the crime statistics and the uh, statistics of uh, to do with moral behaviour and alcohol consumption, all those sorts of things." And so we we did that, and as a result of that, I think it's one of the few times that anybody's done this for the Billy Graham Crusade. But mm. we did this, and we found out that in Australia, Billy Graham made a real impact on Australians. Not only did it greatly increase church going. But uh, mm -hmm. but, it, but the all the crime indices dipped after Billy Graham and the alcohol the consumption of alcohol wow consumption of beer went down after Billy Graham was here. <laughs> so it's amazing yeah it was a, it was a I, real I mean when you read the newspapers at the time you read about people talking about their marriages being healed and families coming together and wow. all those sorts of things so that was that was it's amazing survival, I think mm. yeah. I think I've read also in, in some of what you've written that um, births out of wedlock, uh, the rate of that decreased um, compared to the years be both before and after the Billy Graham Crusades. Is that correct? Yes, that's a, a moral non-criminal uh, indice. Mm. Um, and uh, what, what was alarming Australians in the 1950s was, of course, the Cold War and the fear of nuclear war and so on. But also there was a... Uh, I think a justified anxiety in Australia about the great decline of Australians into uh, uh, into a moral state that was less than desirable, and that was one indicator mm. that things slowed down a bit for a while. Mm. 
then then yeah went went uh, very bad again in the in the late sixties in the seventies. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. that's fascinating. Well. Uh, we've already started talking a little bit about revival, and I guess um, before we get too much into the details, because we really do want to, you know, talk about Australia's revival history, mm. I'd love to know just from a personal point of view, where did your passion for revival begin? Uh, you, you shared a little bit about your time uh, at Yale and uh, about your own sort of personal conversion, but revival as a topic of interest, how did that come about? Yeah. Um, in 1974, I was appointed to uh, a lectureship in history at Wollongong University. And uh, uh, I've always been, I mean, I grew up on a farm and it was very flat. And Wollongong fascinated me because it's so hilly and so green and so, so incredibly beautiful. And but the most beautiful part of it is Mount Kembla. Um, uh, and in 1902 at Mount Kembla, there was the worst disaster, in a mine disaster in Australian history. 96 men and boys were killed. It's the worst disaster. Uh, in Australia before the Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria in 2009. Mm. And uh, so I began to make a study of this disaster because um, I was a member of the the, the church which met at Mount Kembla, um, so the parish of Fig Tree, and that church is known as the Miners and Soldiers Memorial Church, so it still commemorates the disaster and it kept the memory of the disaster going. So I got interested in this disaster. What I, what I found amazing was that when you go around the cemeteries, the, there are two big cemeteries up there with disaster victims in them. You'll be astonished at the sentiments on the headstones. You know, come Christ, come 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 quickly to Christ, make no delay, for no one knows his judgment day. Things like this. Wow. You, you get this feeling that these are a very religious people, really. And um, I got a bit of a surprise because. We'd been taught by all the secular historians that Australians take death nonchalantly. You know, they, they don't necessarily, mm. well, they don't think about it at all. Mm. But here there were these headstones which had these Christian sentiments, very strongly so. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But but then that, then I came across something even more amazing. That in the in the months just before the disaster, there was a genuine religious revival in Mount Kembla. Wow. And then I found that this genuine religious revival took place in all the coal mining villages and the Illawarra, they, you know, they, they, they dot the Illawarra coastline like beads on a string. And, <laughs> and people got converted in their hundreds, you know, 175 in Mount mm. Kembla and 232 in wow. Helensburg and, you know, um, 250 in Bulli and so on. I'm just making the figures up, but they're, they're sort of, that sort of order. I just can't remember mm. the figures, but they were, it was a genuine, yeah. genuine religious revival. Um, wow. And uh, so that's what really started it, I think. What I have since found is that that revival in the Illawarra coalfields was actually part of a much wider revival, uh, mm. which took place in New South Wales and particularly in Melbourne. In Melbourne, it was known in 1902 mm. as the big, the big revival. Uh, yeah. And I think probably Australia came close to a sort of uh, Australia-wide awakening in 1902. Now, this is all, this all surprised me when I first discovered this revival at Mount Kembla in, in 1902 because I thought that revival was not an Australian thing. I thought it was an American thing. Mm. I thought there'd never been a religious revival. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know there'd <laughs> been any revivals in Australia. So I got quite a surprise. So since, since then, 
uh, we've found scores of revivals, and in the books which you kindly mentioned, we list we list large numbers of them. It's been a fairly, mm. fairly frequent experience in Australian history. It's amazing. I think I saw somewhere that you've documented at least 71, is that right? Or perhaps that might have been a figure from, you know, a decade or so ago. Perhaps you've, you've even found more than that. Yes, I think that's right, something like that, yeah. But I mean, it all, de- wow. all depends on your definition of revival and so on. Maybe we can come of course. in the duration of the interview. Yeah, no, that sounds great. I'd also love to ask, um, yeah, just in terms of, I guess, Australia's Christian foundations, when I was reading The Fountain of Public Prosperity, so this is um, a book that I believe won uh, Christian Book of the Year, is that right, for 2018 um, or, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just really encourage everyone to get a, get a hold of this. It's quite a tome. It's um, a big book, but it's been super encouraging for me, and uh, it took me a while to work my way through it, but it was so that I could sort of digest it, you know, just the, the vast Christian history of our nation, which um, I think so often has, has been forgotten. But one of the things that fascinated me in um, the Fountain of Public Prosperity is just how intentional Christians were uh, about this new land called Australia, um, who were coming from Europe and wanting to yeah, really settle the nation as a Christian place. And the appointment of Richard uh, Johnson as, I believe he was the chaplain on the First Fleet, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that, about the, I guess, the intent, the Christian intentions for Australia and, and a bit of that story around Richard Johnson? Yes. Well, thank you. Um, the important thing to to um, know about all this, I think, is that uh, even, even white Australian history doesn't begin in 1788 with the First Fleet. Mm-hmm. And so in our first, first of our two volumes... We, um, we go back to 1740, to the Great Awakening, because mm. there's a direct link between um, the Great Awakening and the settlement of Australia. It's actually quite quite an amazing story, I think. Um, uh, the great One of the great preachers of the Great Awakening was George Whitfield, possibly the greatest preacher the church has ever had in terms of his capacity to, mm. to reject the dramatic um, mm. gospel. And um, uh, one of the persons who was into, who was converted under him was was a, a descendant of the Huguenots, um, Protestant Christians from France, called Margaret Gambier, and she married right. Charles Charles Middleton and, and infused her faith into Charles, and and Charles became the controller of the navy, and it was Charles Middleton who put together the first fleet. And he decided that he wanted to have ships which wouldn't sink like slave traders. He wanted to make sure that, mm-hmm. that this experience would be nothing like the slave trade because the evangelicals, mm-hmm. of which he was one, an early one, they believed in the abolition mm-hmm. of the slave trade. So they didn't want this first fleet to be anything like that. So he made sure that yeah. these ships were seaworthy and safe and, and he also made sure they were well provisioned so that nobody was hungry. So the amazing thing is that Hardly anybody died on the first fleet. It was a great maritime miracle. You don't you don't read about this. You don't learn about this at school, but this is because the, the second historians have left all this out. But in actual fact, the first fleet was an, a great maritime achievement. Hardly anybody died. The convicts got off the ships wow. heavier than when they got on because they were so well provisioned. Um, this is this was an amazing thing, and I think that um, if you look at the impact of Christianity on Australia, I mean you mentioned the fact that this was a uh, this was a very big book well we had to write two very big books because there's just so much to say 
about the enormous. Mm. I mean, Christianity is probably the most formative influence on Australian history by a long way, but it's been left out by by our secular historians. So the books had to be had to be long. And while you did say that you waded through it, my wife said that they're well written. By the way, she she read them, she she read them avidly, and she she enjoyed the way. Yeah. But anyway, there are lots of stories, and you know, Christianity made a big influence on our education system, on the legal system, mm. on on the labour movement, uh, mm. you name it, sort of every part of Australian medical wealth mm. system, charities, and so on, mm-hmm. and. Yeah. Um, if you look, for example, at the labour movement, uh, the great founder of the labour movement in Australia before the formation of the Labour Party was William Guthrie Spence. And uh, mm. Spence House is the name of the um, the, uh, the union movement house in uh, Melbourne. But what, you know, mm. what, what they don't tell you about Spence down there probably is that he was a, he was a devout evangelical Christian, a... a um, a Methodist and a Presbyterian lay preacher, and his mm. his book on the labour movement is full of the language of revival, including the title of the book "Australia's Awakening." Wow. So you, you don't have to look far not only to see the influence of Christianity, but the influence of revival, revive Christianity mm. on us on, on Australia. <laughs> you just find it everywhere if you go looking for it. That's awesome. That's so good. And so Richard Johnson, what, what was the story with his appointment? And uh, he, he preached the first sermon, I believe, on Australian soil. Yes. Yes, yes. Richard Johnson was um, uh, uh, an evangelical curate in, in, uh, in London. And uh, he was probably approached by John Newton, the converted slave trader, and by William Wilberforce. Wow. And, and uh, he... I mean, this is a huge deal to go overseas. Nobody knew anything about it. It was the longest trip that anyone had taken, and it was an extraordinary yeah. thing to to agree to do it. Uh, but he made—I think—he's one of the great heroes. Actually, he was temperamentally, I think, rather a gentle and shy fellow. But uh, he stayed, stayed there for eleven years, and the convicts the convicts really respected him. He was very good at pastoral work. I think he used to just sit down with them and talk to them, and uh, uh, he was really quite incredibly successful. He was the one who preached the first sermon under a, a big gum tree, um, which is in the, you know, the, the, the spot is now marked by a monument in Sydney. Uh, you can, it's good just to stand there and reflect on how he would have preached about 800 male convicts on that site uh, seven, eight days after the, after the fleet first landed. A lot of myths about this. Wow. Yeah. It's thought that um, that, sh- that that Australians were anti-religious right from the start because convicts were not particularly religious and because they didn't have a, a church service on the first Sunday. But if you look into it, you find that William, uh, that Richard Johnson put an enormous amount of effort into making that service a success, choosing the spot, making sure that everything was set in place. These things just don't happen. And uh, so I think it was, it was quite quite something really. And he was the one who built the first church. Yeah. 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 Incredible. So you were sort of summarising a number of different influences that uh, Christianity or even revival Christianity has had on Australia. Could you maybe unpack that a little bit more? So um, I guess another way to ask that question is how has Christianity shaped the Australia that we all know and love? You know, we're in 2022 now and... Uh, 
you know, so much has changed. Australia is a lot more secular, but even there's that I would say there's a lot of remnants of the Christian influence still in our culture today. Could you maybe unpack that a little bit more? Well, as I mentioned, I, I think that probably it's influenced uh, every aspect of Australian life. Um, it is said, for example, that uh, the first that the Australian culture was first of all formed by um, by the early by the early chaplains, they were given the responsibility for education in the colony. They were the ones who established the first schools and appointed the first school teachers. Um, William Wilberforce um, was incredibly involved in all of this. Uh, there are lots of letters that he that he wrote to um, uh, the early Australian chaplains and uh, and and the governors and so on and. He was very keen that the Christian influence should be front and centre uh, in, mm. in, in, the, in the development of Australia. And if you look at the various governors, um, the, the, the thing that most historians emphasise is that Philip, the first governor, was, uh, was very influenced by the Enlightenment and therefore was not overtly Christian. But uh, I think that's also a bit of a myth because uh, if you look at one of the maps that he first of all uh, developed himself for the development of Sydney, smack in the middle of it, the site for, for, for the church he, he intended for a major church to be built smack in the middle of the new colony. So even he was probably more Christian than our secular historian to make out. There was certainly anti-Christian activity by, by his successor, Gross, who was um, uh, an unsavoury piece of work. But then you've got, you got um, uh, governors like, um, like Hunter, and of course Macquarie, uh, very committed Christians really, and uh, did a, a great deal for the, um, the Christian presence in in Sydney at that time. Um, then when you go on from the education system to the legal system uh, and the development of our governing institutions, including um, the democratic element in Australia, and the heading towards federation, you find that the Christian influence is very strong there and the best book on Australian federation begins with the words that God intended Australia to be a federation. That's how the historian begins it. Because mm. If you look at all the sermons we preached at the time, the clergy were fascinated by mm. the possibility and, and uh, wanted to make sure that Australia was uh, you know, a godly place. There were problems um, mm. and uh, things that... Uh, when we look back, were not as pleasing as they should have been, such as the white Australia policy. But again, mm. it was Christians like Alan Walker in the, in the 50s mm. who were chiefly responsible for getting rid of the white Australia policy. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, wow. Now, um, we will start talking a little bit more about um, revival specifically. So I guess before we do that, to lay the groundwork, how would you define revival? This is something that you've picked up in a number of your books. Um, so I know you've got a fairly well thought out answer to this. How do you define revival, Stuart? This is a very important question, I think. Um, mm. And uh, there's a sort of a short answer and there's a long answer. Have you got time for me to give you both? That'd be great if you, if you did. Both, both sounds fantastic. Well, my favourite definition of revival is that it's waking up to reality. Mm. It's waking up to reality because mm. reality is the world as it is perceived by God. It's God's perspective on things. Mm. 
that's what reality is. And when revival comes along, it's always a surprise and a shock to people because God's perspective on things is nearly always so different from our own. And we suddenly realise that the things that you know we were taking for granted aren't necessarily the way things are. For example, I think that God is... The reality is that God is far more concerned about sin and the devil than we are. There's a sort of spiritual dimension to all of this that we, we, we have, under our secular influence, we've tended to, even we Christians, we've tended to put behind us. And we don't like talking about sin much and we certainly don't like talking about the devil. And yet um, suddenly things happen like a Russian... Uh, Premier invades Ukraine or something, and we look at him with, "How can this be? This is this is so, this is so preposterous. This is so awful. This 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 looks satanic, doesn't it?" And you begin to think that maybe there is such a thing as pure evil, and there is such a thing as the, as the satanic, and it's helpful to to realise that to realise that. So that's that's sort of one part of the the dimension of waking up to reality. The reality that there is a spiritual dimension which is uh, which is going to be hard fought in this world in this life. The second thing is that um, our, the reality is that in God, through the wonderful agency of His Son Jesus and the power of the Spirit, people's potential is far greater than we realise. There's there is an enlargement. Um, a potential for greatness, uh, for for influence, which is positive and godly, which is far greater than we normally give ourselves credit for. That I think is a another part of of um, a revival. So revivals so often meet people's genuine needs and transform and correct them so that things are better in the future. If you think about, mm. if you think about. Um, the revivals we've talked about already, such as that in 1902. It was not only a revival in the, in the coal mining villages, but it was also a revival across the colonies. And at that time, Australia had been through a 10-year drought, probably the longest drought in Australian white history, and a terrible economic recession. Things were really, really grim. And revival came as some sort of answer to that, I think, some sort of social answer. To that. If you look at Billy Graham in 1959, if you think about that as revival, then uh, this was a time of the fear of the, of the Cold War. There was great anxiety in Australia at that time about the Cold War and about moral decline, as I mentioned. So revival comes as, a, as, as some sort of response to that. And it means that it's moving you forward into a better future. Um, some people regret the fact that revivals end. But what revivals do is they reset things. So that you're starting, yeah. They, I mean, you do have words like refreshment and restoration and so on. That those sort of words give you the impression that you're just going back to where you were before. You know, restoring things mm. as, as they were before. But in actual fact, revivals probably don't do that only. They always take you beyond that. Mm. They take you to a, a new point wow. uh, uh, of departure, and then you, then you start again. Mm. So there's that about that's 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 a, that's a second reality. You know, if, you have, if the first one's a negative reality about sin and the devil, the next one's a positive reality about how, how wonderful uh, the, the potential is in God. 
but yeah. but but the re the reality, as I've said, is God, and therefore what revivals ultimately do is that they start to get people focused. Not the focus is off themselves, so they no longer think about themselves so much and their own needs. They're no longer thinking about how God can meet their needs. They start to think about who God is in Himself, in His glory. Mm. You know, the great prayer for revival is, "Come down, Lord, where Your glory fills the heavens, and and may it cover the earth with Your glory and Your purity and Your truth." Mm. God in Himself, for who He is in His own glory, that's the ultimate taste and aspiration that people develop when they are influenced by a genuine revival, I think. So that's my yeah. that's my short answer. <laughs> namely, <laughs> namely, it's waking up to reality, but I just thought we'd need to unpack it. But in yeah. in the book, Fire yeah. Storm of the Lord, um, mm. which, uh, which you mentioned, uh, there is on page 11 uh, my definition, which is... It, it, it's in two paragraphs, and the first paragraph is a theological definition, and the second paragraph is a historical definition. And why I gave both is that I'm not a theologian, but that uh, revival is obviously something you've got to understand in terms of biblical revelation. So you have to have the theological understanding. And what we're, what I basically said there is that revival is the work of the of the of the Holy Trinity, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are involved in doing their unique work in, in, in sanctifying and converting and regenerating and empowering people. Mm. Yeah. But then, um, then there are these historical dimensions to it, which are important because uh, when you think about revival, the, the question is, how is it possible to be involved in promoting revival? Um, mm. what, how can we cooperate with the Lord in order to do the work of the Lord. Christians understand that God is sovereign, that uh, revival is always a sovereign work of God. It won't happen unless the Spirit's present. I mean, you can work yourself up into all sorts of emotional frenzies and all the rest, but that's not revival. Revival is only real when God's there. But, but revivals, humanly speaking, are nearly always preceded by certain things, by, by extraordinary prayerfulness, by exceptional expectation. So people expect that something's about to happen. People start to get excited. Mm. And also by unprecedented unity among Christians. So the Christians who squabble among themselves about the things that they think are important suddenly think, just a minute, these things are not nearly as important as what we have in common. So you get Catholics and Protestants yeah. getting together again and, and, and you know, enjoying mm. life in the spirit and so on. So revivals mm. have those characteristics. Now, historians can, can write about those things because you can, you can find evidence for... The prayerfulness. You can find evidence for great expectation. You can find evidence for unity mm -hmm. among Christians. So these are the things which, mm -hmm. which help you to write about revivals. Yeah, and it is striking how true you know those the historical definition that you've just given. Um, you know, as I'm as you were explaining that, I was thinking back through some of the big revivals in uh, Australian history that we've already mentioned. You know, the 1902 uh, Illawarra and Melbourne revival, and also the Billy Graham Crusades. Um, those things were very much in evidence, the unity, the expectation, the prayerfulness. Um, it's, it is, is strikingly true. Yes, the prayer, so. the prayer before um, the Billy Graham Crusades was just a spiritual explosion. People, mm. uh, there were scores of, of uh, places to go to pray and people just prayed all night. Mm. They just they wow. prayed for hours and hours and hours and, uh, mm. and they wanted to, you know. 
in, if you're not in a revival situation, prayer is hard work. But if you're not in a revival situation, it just comes and you just want to be there in the presence of the Lord. Yeah. It's just delightful. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. Awesome. Well, we've talked a few about a few different, you know, revivals from Australian history. Is there one that you would say is your favourite that hasn't been mentioned so far? Well, I suppose uh, my favourite is the one I discovered first time here at Mount Kembla because we historians, yeah. we're, we're very sinful and we are proud of the things we discover, you see. So, <laughs> so, so um, I guess that one's important to me. And because, But I guess for another reason, um, I don't know if you've got, I think you mentioned that you've got to the end of our first volume, but at the end of our first volume, we suggest humbly that maybe the Welsh revival, the Great Welsh revival, might have even begun in New South Wales. So That is fascinating. Old, old Wales, maybe the revival really began in, in New South Wales, and there's evidence for that. Mm. And uh, yeah. you, you, I'd be interested to see what, what your readers, if they read the book, what they think of our evidence. But the reason why, we, yeah, why absolutely. The, the reason why we suspected that in the first place was because of the, of the amazing experience in the, um, in the uh, Mount Kembla revival or the coal mine revivals that the pit ponies stopped working because they could no longer understand the commands of the miners because they started to speak with a pure speech. And, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I thought that was amazing. But when I read about the Welsh Revival, I found that exactly the same thing happened there. Now, it's yeah. important to say that, I mean, this sounds like evangelical hagiography or something. This sounds unbelievable. But that that is testified to in the South Coast Times, in the secular press, wow. in the Illawarra. It's not just something made up by Christians to... Mm. It really Incredible. happened, I think. But then it happened in Wales. Yeah. But it happened in New South Wales first. Mm. It happened in New South Wales two years yeah. before it happened in Wales. And therefore I wondered if there, if there was some sort of connection between the two. And then you went. Then I went and looked for all sorts of other evidence as well, uh, mm. found, found all sorts of evidence. One of the... Uh, mm. What we haven't talked about is, is, is that revival is relatively common among Aboriginal people. There have been... Yeah. Lots of little revivings among Aboriginal people, and including a very one very big revival, 1979 to 1982, which began in in Elko Island, um, uh, and swept across the Northern Territory and across Central Western Australia, and, and was very important in in meeting the needs of Aboriginal people who, as you understand, were demoralised and. Um, and feeling disadvantaged strongly, and this this increased their dignity and uh, was was a very powerful, empowering force for them. God, in His love, mm. meeting their needs. Once you were no people, but now you are a people, the people of God. Mm -hmm. uh, One Peter chapter two, mm. verse ten. So that was a that was a great yeah. thing. But um, in in uh, in Sydney, there's an Aboriginal pastor who's an Anglican pastor, very uh, uh, significant. Work among the Aboriginal people by the name of Ray Minikin. And um, I met his brother Rodney in, when I was in Wollongong University many years ago. Mm. And I said to him, uh, Rodney, have you ever been involved in a revival? And he just laughed and he said, he said I've been involved in 30 revivals. 
<laughs> wow. And, and I've since found out that Rodney and Ray were the products of the um, in, of a revival in Pinnacle Pocket in the Atherton Tableland mm -hmm. in Queensland. Their father was the pastor of that church. And, but the interesting thing wow. is that um, the, the pastor before him, the pastor before Rodney and Ray's father, was a product of the Welsh Revival. He'd come out of the Welsh Revival, come to yeah. Queensland, yeah. and he stabbed the church. Now, you can find videos about this readily on the net, on the Pinnacle Pocket Revival. Mm -hmm. and I'd encourage mm. your viewers to look at it. It's very exciting stuff. Yeah. And uh, you can see the, the ongoing impact of this, of this you know, the Welsh Revival, mm. maybe, maybe the New South Wales impacting the Welsh Revival, impacting the Queensland Pinnacle Pocket Revival, <laughs> impacting... <laughs> Zigzags all around the world, eh? There and back again. Yeah. I, th yeah. I think what this means is that revivals are things which, which tend to be caught rather than taught. You mm. catch fire from, mm -hmm. from others who have experienced them. So that's important yeah. to mention to all of this, I think. It is. Yeah, super encouraging. I've actually just finished reading Fire in the Outback as well. So that's the story of the Elko Island revival that went to Warburton and, you know, Central WA and Northern Territory, as you've explained. Do you know, uh, Stuart, if there's still much evidence of that uh, taking place today, or not, not so much evidence, but is, is, has that revival reignited? Is there still um, significant spiritual life in those communities or have things sort of, I guess, settled down again? What, what's your understanding yes. of that? Now, who, who was it again who... Who wrote that book on the on the? Um, so that's John Blackett, I believe. John Blackett. Now he he would be able to answer that question. Um, John yeah. has uh, has has done amazing work. See, one of the reasons why that book is so important is that it includes the voice of Aboriginal people. It includes their testimony. Mm. It's, You're right. it's, it's great to hear the testimony of those who have actually experienced revival. And I, I think that book is a very important book that John Blackett has put together. Mm. He's a very important source of um, of information on all, on all of this. Far more mm. than I could than I could help you with, I'm afraid. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's great. Awesome. Well, um, you do write a lot about the Pacific Islands revivals in uh, uh, both the Fountain of Public Prosperity and particularly in Attending to the National Soul. You've dealt with it in quite a bit of depth there because um, I guess Australia's influence in the in the Pacific Islands has been reasonably significant. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm interested to hear a bit more from you as to what how big that role has been because I know that um, one of the intentions of uh, believers who settled Australia and who were praying for Australia from the outset is that there would be a Christian presence in the South Pacific Islands and in the Asia kind of region. So to what extent has Australia helped ignite fires of revival in the Pacific Islands and perhaps vice versa, has there been an influence yeah. back from the Pacific Islands to Australia? Yeah, great questions. Um, the evangelicals who sent out Richard Johnson were very keen, as you've pointed out, that Australia should be used as a base for missions to the South Seas. Mm. When, the, um, when, the, when the great missionary movement began in the 1790s uh, in response to revival fires with the Baptist mission to India and so on, there's a great debate about where, where you should send your missionaries to. And there were those who said, oh, we should send them to India because India is a high civilization. And people who are highly civilised are more likely to become Christians first. And there are others who said, no, we, we need to send them to the people who are the most needy. We need to send them to the islanders of the South Seas. So, of course, 
they sent them to both. Um, missions to India were very important and missions to the South Seas were very important. And um, uh, there, there were great books written on all of this. Um, J. Edwin Orr wrote a book about evangelical awakenings in the South Seas. It's hard to come by, but Robert Evans, who has written more books on, on revivals in Australia and New Zealand and the Pacific than anybody else, on the net, you'll find a little thing of his that's written on evangelical revivals in the Pacific Islands and Papua New Guinea, mm. and uh, it's you can just work through those, and it's, it's a good way of catching up on this very quickly. But right. why this is so important is that, um, as you've suggested, Australia has been involved in the Pacific. It's very important involvement, and uh, as you know, it's currently in the news at the moment because of the conflict with with France and. And uh, the French have also been very influential in the in the South Seas. But what it meant was and that, that the, unlike India, the missionaries to the South Seas were incredibly successful. In India, was hard going, mm. but in in the Pacific Islands, uh, within a generation or so, most of the islanders became Christians. And what that means wow. is that you've got a Christian presence there in the Pacific which is facing over against the alternative belief systems of Asia over to the West. So strategically, from the point of view of God's history, the point of view of the future of Christianity in, in world history, these are, these are very significant things that have happened, I think. Um, so when Wilberforce and company were laying the foundation of the, the base for the, the missionising of the South Seas, it was a, something of great, great potential. Now, often the islanders became Christians through revivals. So in 1813, for example, Tahiti, uh, which at first was a very dangerous place for the missionaries to go, 1813-15 mm. went over to Christianity following the conversion of King Pomare, and he built a church which held three times as many worshippers as St Paul's Cathedral. Um, wow. these, are, these are big things. <laughs> In 1834, revival came to Tonga, and a couple of thousand came to the Lord in just a few days. There's another big revival there in 1846. Samoa uh, was evangelised from Tahiti. There were significant revivals there in 1835 and again in 1840. Revival broke out in Hawaii, which was missionised from America, and that continued that revival for five years. In Fiji, uh, Fiji was visited by John Watsford, who was... Australian Methodist, Australian-born Methodist, mm. who took revival with him wherever he went. An amazing guy. <laughs> worth reading his, his biography. But Fiji had been mm. a very bloodthirsty place. Cannibalism was rife there. Mm -hmm. But there was a spectacular revival in Fiji in 1845 to, 40, to 46. And if you go to Fiji today and go to their churches, listen to their singing, you'll know that this is a product of a genuine religious revival. Um, mm. Coming up into the 20th century, in 1906 in Australia, there were very significant revivals among Kanakas, who were the sugar workers who were imported mm. uh, to work the sugar in Queensland. General revival there in 1906. They were then sent back mm. under the White Australia policy to the Solomon Islands right. under the White Australia policy, and they took the gospel with them. So huh. interesting the way God works. And then yeah. in more recent times, there was a really spectacular revival in the Solomon Islands in 1970. Written about, mm. a beautiful book written on this by um, 
uh, a woman called Griffiths. Um, and the, the Griffiths have been associated with the South Seas Evangelical Mission and the South Seas Evangelical Church for, for generations. Um, mm. One of the great things about Australian history is the way Christianity creates these Christian dynasties and they just go on from generation to generation doing good work for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Then in 1972, there was a revival in Papua New Guinea. And uh, from that, some of the leaders of, of Papua have come. Some of the Australian evangelicals established a leaders' training centre in Papua New Guinea to train people not only to lead the church, but also to, to lead the nation. And there's a lot of Christian mm. leadership in the, in the Pacific Islands. <clears throat> and it's interesting when you think about our uh, economic and political involvement with these countries, how important the Christian influence might be. A wise um, minister dealing with these matters for the government would take into account the Christian mm. presence and the, what Christians have to contribute. Mm. Yeah, mm. so true. <clears throat> yeah, that's awesome. Wow, so much there for me to dig into um, as I continue researching. So thank you. Now, looking to, I guess, more of um, to the situation today, in recent decades, I guess, revivals have been uh, less frequent in Australia. And uh, I'd say that they've been actually a lot more frequent in the global south. So, you know, um, I guess India and um, South America, Indonesia, China. Um, why do you think that is? Why, why has it shifted from, I guess, revivals that were much more commonplace in Western nations decades ago to now the developing world or the, the global south? Yes. Um, I don't know that I've got a good answer for this, but the beginnings of an answer is that uh, in the 19th century when revivals were relatively, small local revivals were relatively common in Australia, <coughs> they, were, they were common in Methodist circles. And that's largely, I think, because Methodists expected revival. Uh, and they prayed for it and they had confidence. They... They didn't um, start evangelistic meetings until they believed that the Spirit had come um, uh, and filled them with himself so that they went out in confidence that the, the preaching of the gospel would be honoured. Uh, we normally have the reverse. So we, we have an evangelistic meeting and we hope that the, the Spirit will come later and, and you know, cash in on it. But uh, I think the Methodists had the, the reverse view they'd pray for the coming of the spirit then they had the, then they have the meetings so uh, they were they were relatively common in in australia today in australia today the heirs to revival expecting methodists are the pentecostals the charismatic christians mm. and they are the fastest growing australian churches but they're only a little over one percent i think of the australian population um, whereas in other parts of the global south that you mentioned, um, the Pentecostal churches are a much larger percentage of the population in Africa mm. and in South America in particular. You know, Pentecostals mm. can be a third of the population. Wow. And uh, uh, therefore, you have a lot more people praying and expecting revival in those countries. Mm. Indeed, as we sit here, Christianity is growing more rapidly uh, in the world than it's ever done. Uh, uh, you know, there are thousands of people who become Christians every day, and uh, 
I missed that number. Sorry, how many? Well, that? tens of thousands, I think. Uh, Barrett, Andrew Barrett, yeah, started this, wow. this encyclopedia of Christianity in the world, didn't he? And the and the, and the, the figures of yeah. the people who, who who are coming to Christ are, are spectacular. In Australia, wow. most people become Christians by by being born of Christian parents. Yeah. That's by far the largest number of percentage of people who who become Christians. The family in Australia is not as healthy as it used to be. A, they don't have any children. B, families separate. And when they separate, people stop going to church. Well, they don't, you know, the parents don't take their children to church as much as they did because they're having other things to worry about. So it's a real, it's a real problem in Australia, which you don't have perhaps in some of these other countries. Uh, yeah. But I think that uh, the, uh, the revivals, in those countries are something which uh, will make Christianity continue to grow very dynamically in the global south in a way that we don't experience in the, in the, in the West. Definitely. And I guess as the years go on, we're already seeing a bit of this, but I'm sure we'll see more of it where um, Australia actually becomes a mission field for uh, believers from those, those nations we've just been talking about, yeah. you know, that God does something amazing in their nation, in their church, in their life, and they end up coming to Australia to bring that with them. So, Well, exactly. Um, um, I mean, um, one of the most remarkable revivals that, re that, that Australians were responsible for were revivals in Korea at the beginning of, mm. of the 20th century. Very significant revivals. And as you know, about a third of the Korean population now is Christian. And... They are now the second largest missionary sending country in the world, I think, behind the United States. And they have sent missionaries to Australia. But they're most, most successful in uh, missions to their own people. So that Korean immigrants yeah. normally have something to do with the church. I've heard that there are 500 Korean churches in Sydney alone. And um, wow. I was talking to one of my my doctoral students, my PhD students, I was uh, supervising them at the University of Wollongong. He said he was a he was a the pastor of uh, a um, Korean church, and I said, "Oh, uh, you're the head pastor." Right? Oh no, he said, "I'm just one of many pastors." I said, "Well, how many pastors do you have?" And he said, "Well, we have about thirty pastors." So these churches, some of these churches are huge. Wow, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, you get a lot of spiritual energy. I I think it's interesting to think about. I call it the, the national spiritual equivalent, how there are some nations which seem to have greater spiritual energy and fire than others, and Korea seems to be one of them. I mean, Jesus is the desire of the nations. Some nations mm. seem to desire Jesus in a way which, released, which unleashes revival. The great mm. tragedy in Australia, if uh, Australia as a nation never understood what God intended for it to be in the history of, mm. of, um, yeah. of, of the gospel, yeah, outreach, yeah. outreach in the world. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That's so true. And that really brings us very nicely to the, the last question I'd love to ask you, Stuart, which is what do you think it would take for Australia to see revival again? Um, well, if you go back to the definition, expectation, prayer, unity. The things that we can do are to work on those things. Um, but, uh, and to realise that while 
revivals to be genuine have to spread out into the wider community. They begin with the church, which means they begin with us, which means they begin with me, which means they begin with you. Revivals begin by making nominal Christians into vital Christians. Insofar as the evangelical movement was a product of the Great Awakening and became vital Christianity, it was because nominal Christianity um, was filled with the Spirit and uh, heeded the Gospel, and they became vital Christians. That is, overflowing with the Spirit, who was the life of God, alive with God. Then we need to remember, I guess, so we need to attend to our own souls. That's, that's probably, probably primary. We need to remember that revival is more often caught than taught, and therefore we need to be in touch with those who have experienced revival themselves. And you can catch fire, I think, by, from being with other Christians who have experienced revival, and also by reading about revivals in history and biographies of those who have been ignited by revival fires. Some of these biographies are very very wonderful and stimulating things. Um, but as we've said throughout this overly, overly long interview, I hope it's not been too boring for you. Yeah. Oh, it's been awesome. <laughs> revivals are always sovereign works of God. And yeah. they awaken people to the ultimate reality, which is God. Mm. Revival is waking up to reality. Therefore, yeah. let us focus on what it takes to be God-centred, to understand in your heart what it is to glorify God, rather than thinking of God as one who can just meet my needs. Uh, those are just a few so true. A few humble suggestions. In our book, uh, mm. The Firestorm of the Lord, there's a whole chapter at the end on, on what the future revival might look like. These, This book was given, it was made up of lectures given at Regent College in Vancouver. And uh, a lot of people came to those lectures because there had just been uh, quite a movement of the spirit in Canada at that time. And, uh, mm. uh, and also students who came over from Korea to so they were stimulating lectures, but they—I mean, I remember them telling me that they thought that the next revival would honour the Holy Trinity, because you would become so aware of what the Father, the love of the Father, you become so aware of the glory of the Father, the love of Jesus, the power mm. of the Spirit, that the, there would be a genuine yeah. Trinitarian revival. So, mm. who knows? Sovereign work of God. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's so encouraging. Um, Stuart, once again, thank you so much for your time. Um, I've taken up more time than I asked of you, so I appreciate that a lot. And in no way was I bored. I was on the edge of my seat, and uh, it's just been such a fantastic conversation. So uh, thank you once again so much. I really encourage uh, everyone to get hold of these books, um, particularly um, Attending to the National Soul, which tells the story of the uh, history of evangelical Christians in Australia from um, the end of the First World War right up to 2014, sort of really modern day uh, times. So um, that's uh, it was a shortlisted book in 2020 for Christian Book of the Year and um, definitely encourage everyone to read that, uh, read anything that, that Stuart has put together. And, uh, yeah, thank you again, Stuart, uh, so much for joining me today. Kurt, it's been a great privilege. Am I just permitted to say one thing about those books? Um, wonderfully under the provision of God, uh, a couple of Christians believed it was important to get get them out into the, the public, and therefore 
they subsidised um, th those those books. Now, these books have been published by by the secular press, not by Christian publishers, and it's been marvellous that they should should have taken it on. And yeah. normally, books like this—I mean, these both of these books are over five hundred pages long. Um, normally, books like that would cost over one hundred and fifty dollars, but you can get these books for fifty dollars each, and it's it's mm. incredible. Uh, tribute to those people who who, who um, subsidise them so gener generously. So I'm, I'm very grateful to them. But if your readers yeah. would, your your listeners would, would make sure that they got got hold of a copy. I don't think anybody who is serious about the future of the church in Australia um, should uh, uh, miss out on the chance of finding out as much as you can about about what God Absolutely. is really doing in Australian history as distinct yeah. from the histories which tend to leave God out. So that's why those books are so big. There's just so much to say. And I think that your readers will be astonished at the stories in them. They won't, they won't have heard of much of it at all. Yeah, uh, so, uh, that's certainly true of me. I mean, uh, there's so much I learned for the first time. Uh, like I just, yeah, it, it was such spiritual nourishment for me reading these books. So yeah. I'm very thankful for you and uh, Robert, Linda, for, for putting it together. Terrific. Thank you, Kurt. And thanks yeah. very much for the video. Awesome. Bless you. No problems. Thanks, Stuart.